Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Eric Goldman, Professor of Law and Co-Director of the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara University School of Law. We will discuss his article, Emojis in the Law, which was published in the Washington Law Review, as well as his current work on content moderation. So welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. This paper was so much fun to read and also so timely. And I, and I got to tell you, I learned a lot because like I've used emojis plenty, like probably most other people have, but I totally didn't really understand what they were and how they worked. And I didn't realize how much I didn't understand about what they are and how they work until I read read your paper. So, so maybe you could start us off with just some sort of general observations about emojis. Like what exactly is an emoji? Where do they, where do they come from and, and how do they work? Uh, so emojis are a way of uh, communicating. They're symbols like other types of symbols we have in our society um, that express uh, something that people want to communicate. Um, uh, emojis have a particular set of um uh, attributes. Um, they tend to be integrated into a conversation rather than uh, something that's attached at the end or beginning of a message. Uh, they also tend to be small and and kind of outliney. They're they're not a lot of uh, detail in most of them. Um, so think of them as a small visual symbol that we integrate into our communications to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So where do they come from? Like, wh- wh- how did emojis get created? Like, when were the first emojis available? And who who thought of this? Uh, emojis come from Japan. Uh, they uh, came about two decades ago um, as uh, the cell phone companies in Japan were fighting with each other for market share. And uh, one of the cell phone companies came up with the idea that they could offer up another way uh, to let their subscribers express themselves. Um, and that uh, led birth to uh, the first um, uh, emoji set. But emojis aren't new that way. Um, they're they're uh, preceded by a whole bunch of other ways that we've used visual symbols uh, to communicate with each other. So, for example, before emojis, there were emoticons, which almost everyone who's listening to this probably has used. Uh, these are keyboard characters that we put together to create a visual symbol, like the smiley, colon, dash, and parentheses. And uh, emoticons go back uh, to uh, the 1980s. And then if you even go back further, there are other examples of emoticon or emoji-like depictions um, that can go back hundreds of years. Um, People have been drawing little smiley faces and using them in communications for a very long time. Um, so the emojis themselves are a product of the cell phone era, but they're really preceded by uh, uh, the same concept going back a very long time. So <clears throat> sort of modern emoji invented by this Japanese cell phone company, how did that evolve into the sort of emoji kind of sets and the sort of more extensive cross-platform use of emoji that we're familiar with today. So each 
uh, cell phone company developed its own package of emoji symbols that it offered to its subscribers. Um, and in fact, if you look uh, historically, um, you'll see that there was some overlap, but each one was doing their own thing for a while. Um, and the initial uh, package of emojis uh, was really quite small. I don't remember the exact number, but I want to say it was on the order of less than two dozen. Um, so it was a few uh, symbols that we could incorporate in our conversations, but it wasn't the robust uh, industrial grade solutions that we think of uh, today. Um, and uh, at the same time, um, the uh, standard for keyboard characters uh, were um, managed by an organization called Unicode. Um, Unicode's primary job is to define unique numerical identifiers for each keyboard character that we can use. Um, now, in the uh, Roman alphabet uh, uh, keyboard character, um, that's pretty low-hanging fruit, but there's lots of uh, characters in other languages that need to be defined so that people can communicate with them. Um, and Unicode owns that function. Um, part of the uh, the uh, development of keyboard characters and unique identifiers for those in electronic uh, format um, included uh, various uh, small uh, visual symbols. You may remember them as things like dingbats, if you remember those from um, mm. way back when. Um, so as Unicode took over managing keyboard characters and then it had these legacy um, uh, symbols, it was kind of natural to think that uh, as emojis came up, Unicode could also adopt uh, standards for those and make them into the same kind of general proposition, that there would be unique identifiers for each symbol uh, that would be defined by a standard setting body and so that anyone communicating with each other would be able to uh, recognize the same symbol just like they could recognize the same keyboard character as messages uh, transmit over the internet. Okay, so my understanding then is that Unicode essentially is essentially sort of identifies which new emojis it's going to add to the sort of unified character set of all the different symbols and letters and numbers and so on that it's going to include within its lexicon of, of identified symbols, right? And then every other platform that's implementing or using which a unicode system which i assume is basically all of them right to a greater or lesser degree they then are going to include the same emoji that are in the unicode set or maybe not exactly the same like what's the relationship between the unicode kind of er emoji and the actual kind of realization of an emoji in the way that a user experiences it? So uh, when it comes to a keyboard character, the letter A, um, uh, Unicode has defined a numerical value for that letter that gets transmitted over electronic network. And every time anyone sees that numerical code, they know to depict the letter A. Now that doesn't mean that the letter A is going to appear the same to the sender recipient because we might be using different typefaces. So the A might be depicted in uh, Times New Roman on one end, it might be in Helvetica on the other. But we'll all recognize it as an A just with different styles. And Unicode took the same basic approach to e emojis. It said, we're going to define a title in an emoji, we're going to provide a representative outline of how that emoji should look, and we're going to assign a unique number to that title and that outline. 
And so as those messages are transferring over the network, um, when that unique code uh, comes across, they'll know to reference this title and that, um, uh, that uh, outline. However, each participant in the network is allowed to do their own visual depiction of the emoji. So if it is a smiley face, for example, there'll be a title and a outline that Unicode will associate with a number, but then anyone can, any platform can depict that emoji, that smiley emoji as they see fit. So uh, we might or might not recognize them as smileys across the network, but they're all trying to drive from the same source. Unicode defines the standard of the title, the outline, and the number, but then they don't prescribe how they're depicted on the screen. Mm, mm. So in a, in a sense, it's almost like every platform has its own emoji font, but the fonts communicate kind of, or at least potentially communicate second order information other than just the sort of raw meaning or identification or name of the emoji character itself, that there's potential expressivity through the way that that particular platform has decided to express that particular underlying content. Exactly. So you could think about it as each um, uh, platform adopting its own, quote, typeface for emojis um, with certain style decisions that they're going to make and certain ways of depicting each emoji based on their own personal preferences. Um, So the result is then that Unicode has established an infrastructure that partially standardizes emojis, um, but really, in fact, because each of the depictions is up to the platform, it is quite possible for people to see different things um, on their platform than uh, than the person they're communicating with. I just want to close the loop on that just to make sure we do this thought. There are still what we'll call, what I call proprietary emojis. Going back to the old model, where in the old 1990s cell phone companies, they had their own emoji set that was only useful within their network. Um, it's still possible to do that. And in fact, those are the most common forms of emojis that people use, that there's a whole range of emojis that are only going to work within the platform um, and are never going to work properly across uh, platforms. So they literally won't even go across the platform to another one. They, they'll simply be omitted or they'll be depicted as some kind of omission. Um, so there's still also the proprietary emojis as well as these emojis that are designed to transfer across networks. They just don't do so identically. Okay. 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 So to the extent that emoji are de- depicted differently across platforms, is that a difference sort of equivalent to the difference between depicting the letter A in Times New Roman or Helvetica? Or are there more substantial differences in some cases? The differences are much more substantial. And this is one of the uh, animating problems behind my paper, uh, which is that the depictions can often have materially different details um, in their depictions that makes it um, so that people might get different messages from the emojis. Let me give an example. Um, We have the uh, eagle emoji. Some of the eagle emojis are simply the head profile. Other of the eagle emojis show the uh, eagle taking off in flight. So if someone was trying to refer to the eagle emoji for this metaphor of taking off in flight, but then the person receiving it only sees the head profile, 
they're not going to talk to each other. They're not effectively communicating because literally the emoji looks different in ways that leave out the detail that the sender was trying to communicate. But we have some mm-hmm. social studies on this, that ha- some social science studies on this that actually give us m- much more reason to be nervous about this, um, where literally uh, the social scientists would pre- present the emojis um, on two different platforms to person and say, this is what you saw. This is what the recipient saw. Do you still mean to send this particular emoji if that's what the person saw? On a survey that they did on Twitter, um, uh, 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 25% of the people, once they saw how it was going to be depicted to their recipients, said, uh, no, I actually wish I hadn't sent that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about how people use emoji to communicate specifically. Like, are there a range of different ways that emoji are used in a sort of communicative fashion? And what role do they play? And Sort of where do we see the potential for miscommunication most sort of vividly or uh, uh, most tangibly? Uh, so uh, emojis actually do serve multiple communicative functions. And this is something that is a little bit of a gotcha for the legal system. Uh, we're not used to the letter A uh, having multiple different ways in which people intend it to be interpreted. Um, but with emojis, they actually serve multiple functions in a linguistic sense. And it's possible that the exact same emoji um, in the same message might be performing two different communicative functions. So let me give you some examples of some of the functions they perform. In some cases, people use emojis to substitute for the word. We've all done this. Instead of writing, I love you, you might write, I emoji heart you. Um, and sometimes they're used as a reinforcement. Uh, sometimes the emojis uh, reinforce the message that's being sent. You might say, I love you, and then put a heart after it. Um, so there's a good example now where there might be two different functions that emojis are performing. One time it's a substitution, another time it's reinforcement. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're used to send what we'll call mixed messages, um, that they're used to basically undercut the text. So you might imagine that someone uh, says, uh, you know, I think Professor Goldman's a great professor, and I would say thank you. But then they put the uh, to the eye roll in <laughs> smile emoji. Now all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute, do you really think he's a great professor? Are you now actually saying that he's really not a great professor? We've got this mixed message um, going on. Uh, and I'll just mention one other function. There's some others, but one other uh, primary function emoji is that they act as what we might call discourse management. They're the substitute for the body language, the vocal inflections, and the the pauses that we take in our ordinary communication that just send positive signals to people um, that help the conversation flow. That's why it's called discourse management. It's helping the discourse flow. And we just take these things for granted. But if you deconstruct your interactions with people, there's the head nods that we give to tell people we're listening to you and we're paying attention to you. So a classic example might be someone might write at the beginning of their message, um, uh, hello, uh, and then they might put a smiley after uh, that. Um, The smiley in that circumstance is usually acting in a discourse management function. It's designed to be the... The, the smile on their face, the, the eyes getting bigger, the, uh, the, the lifting of the tone of voice to say, hey, I'm, I'm sending a friendly message. The hello mm. is just being uh, sent in a friendly way. 
Mm, 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 mm. So it seems like there's a whole range of different meanings that emoji can have. And, and it struck me reading your paper as well that it seems like they're simultaneously this like super new form of written communication and also like a super old form of written communication at the same time. And in some ways it feels like we're almost rediscovering a grammar that must have existed a long time ago that we've sort of forgotten how to parse in some ways. Uh, I I like that because uh, the way you describe that, because really I think that's right, that we started out with um, visual imagery as our primary um, uh, building blocks of communication, things like hieroglyphics, literally used visual symbols instead of words or letters and uh, uh, character letters in a word. Um, and then we moved away, and I don't know how to date this. We could we could debate when this happened, but we moved away from that kind of visual communication to a very text based form of uh, of written communication. Uh, text is the prime had primacy for a very long time. And we're almost moving back to where the visual is taking some of the uh, percentage of communication back and saying that, uh, you know, we're adding these visual building blocks of communication and they're taking an increasingly greater share of the overall percentage of communication that we're doing in our uh, written format. Um, and emojis are a key part of that. Um, they're really uh, old and yet they're really new. And the, the thing that makes them especially new is that because of all the stuff with the Unicode technology under the hood, that there's technological implications of using emojis. They're 100% different than technological implications of using a uh, character written word. Um, so not only are they uh, 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 move away from textual primacy, but they're an introduction of technological complication to the way that we're communicating uh, that we're going to have to get ad- adjusted to. Do you, do you think we're starting to see any kind of like grammar of emoji starting to emerge or ways in which they sort of can communicate more different information in combination than they do on their own or communicate symbolic information other than what they literally depict? In other words, do you think there's a way in which we're kind of rediscovering some of the kind of pictographic grammar that we may have lost over millennia? Uh, Maybe. I'm I'm agnostic about that question. Uh, But I do think that I view emojis as very uh, relevant to a a much more societal-wide change, moving away from text as a primary form of communication to visual communication. That it turns out visual communication is very efficient. Um, uh, you know, the the old maxim, a picture uh, speaks a thousand words. Um, we're seeing that uh, maxim applied across a wide range of ways we communicate. Things like memes and GIFs are part of that. Things like um, the amount of time we're spending watching YouTube videos as opposed to reading textual discussions of things um, uh, is part of that. The amount of time that we spend watching TV as opposed to other forms of text-based communication like reading a book. Um, there's a society-wide change uh, of, uh, of uh, the primacy of visual communication over textual communication. And emojis are uh, just a piece of that. But we're going to have to learn how to use them properly. And especially you mentioned the word grammar. We don't really have a good grammar for how to sequence emojis in, co- in conversations. Um, and 
that's partially because they're so new that we haven't had a chance to develop some of these uh, uh, social norms and or rules uh, for communication. Um, we're still developing those. That's how new emojis are. Mm-hmm. Well, so you mentioned that different technical platforms will depict emojis in different ways. So people will see different images depending on what platform they're using to realize the underlying abstract Unicode uh, symbol. Um, do different discursive communities use different emojis in different ways as well? In other words, might different people mean different things by way of the same emoji? Uh, the short answer is yes, um, but that's actually not unusual. Um, I would describe that as uh, just another form of community-based slang uh, that um, uh, that it takes place with all forms of communication. Um, you know, uh, words have different meanings in different communities, um, and uh, hand uh, gestures have different meanings in different communities. Um, they sometimes break down based on geography. Sometimes they base break down based on uh, uh, social communities, um, and uh, sometimes they break down based on language. Um, that there's things in language to drive the, de- the development of uh, language-specific slang. The one thing that is different about emojis is that they also developed a slang based on the technological platform. Because the platforms depict emojis differently with different details, those different details lead that platform and the users on the platform to develop new platform-specific meanings of those terms. So there's going to be an Apple emoji slang, and that Apple emoji slang is going to differ from Android emoji slang. Mm, mm, mm. That's really fascinating. So the law is so much often about understanding what people are trying to and actually managing to accomplish uh, to communicate to other people. Um, how have courts and the legal system more broadly dealt with emoji in relation to interpreting communications? Um, you know, are they parsing them? Are they thinking about what emojis mean when they sort of try to contextualize particular communications? Like how are they wrestling with this new mode of communication? Uh, as far as I've been able to find, the first textual reference to emoji in a court opinion in the U.S. Uh, was in 2014. So this is a very new phenomenon for the courts. They don't have a lot of years of experience of dealing with emojis. And emoji references in court opinions is growing exponentially. It's, it's just taking off. But still, the total number of court opinions that have subsequently analyzed emojis, as opposed to just referencing that emojis were in the evidence that the court encountered, uh, is pretty small. Um, so we're still at the beginning stages of courts uh, dealing with emojis. Um, they're just starting to see them. Uh, they haven't developed any emoji-specific approaches to um, uh, resolving interpretive uh, concerns. Um, we don't have that many cases that have really grokked the emojis. Now, having mm. said that, um, the, uh, the, the starting baseline is that courts are actually pretty well set up to deal with new ways that people communicate with each other. 
this is not a new problem. Uh, courts deal with this all the time with other types of uh, communicative media. So courts have to deal with hand symbols or courts have to deal with, uh, uh, you know, colors as a communicative uh, tool. Or they have to deal with uh, all the different types of slang uh, that we mentioned, whether it's language or community or uh, geography based. Um, so uh, for them, emojis are just another communication that needs to be interpreted. Um, and they're used to dealing with novel forms of co communicative um, uh, symbols or techniques. Um, so the good news is that though courts haven't seen emojis very often, much of the things that they do and have done for hundreds of years will apply verbatim to emojis. Mm -hmm. well, do, you, do you think we should expect to start to see like emoji experts or something or kind of context experts to come in and provide like expertise to courts in interpreting what emoji use might mean in a particular context? Uh, we already are seeing that. And I do think that that's going to be the wave of the future. But the real question is, do we need a, a person who's an expert in emojis to interpret uh, an emoji? Or do we need an expert in the community or in the, uh, uh, the geography or the language to help interpret that? Uh, let me give you an example. Um, we uh, had a recent case involving uh, the allegation that uh, the defendant was engaged in sex trafficking. And there was an Instagram communication with one of his alleged victims um, where he said things that included the crown emoji, the high heels emoji, and uh, the bags of money emoji. Um, and uh, the prosecutors introduced an expert in sex trafficking who said, there are specific meanings for those uh, emoji symbols in the prostitution, commercial sex, slash sex trafficking community. That the crown is really a symbol for I want to be your pimp. Um, and that the high heels is a symbol for you're going to be uh, uh, walking the streets as my prostitute. Um, and then, of course, the bags of money, relatively self-explanatory, but it was a way of communicating. If we do all this, you're going to get a share of the, the money. Um, and so the, the domain expertise in sex trafficking, knowing how people in that community were talking to each other, was, I think, more important than a person who comes in and says, I understand emojis generally, but I don't know how they've been used in this particular community. Mm -hmm. Well, and the communication you described really does have like the elements of a kind of basic grammatical communication. It's almost like an emoji sentence. Well, I, I kind of edited it out. Actually, there were some words around the symbols as uh, well that helped put some context around that. But, uh, but the emojis actually, I think, were relevant to the analysis by, for example, the crown emoji having that unique interpretation in that community. Um, you better understood the text around it. Okay, so this was really, a, a, in like a contractual sense, almost an offer. I'm offering to be your pimp. Um, and that might or might not have been clear from the sentence, but the emoji reinforced the message. Um, but mm. we wouldn't have necessarily gone that without that, uh, that uh, expertise. Now, in many cases, the emojis are either self-explanatory, and I'll give you another example. We had one where a court didn't use an expert, where it was a witness intimidation claim, um, and uh, the uh, defendant had sent uh, the rat emoji to the alleged victim. Um, situation like that, of course, like, I know what the, the rat symbol means. I don't need any expert to tell me that. It's self-explanatory. Um, 
that's the more common situation. Or in many situations, the emoji is functionally irrelevant to the communication. You could you could eliminate the emoji, and the sentence would still read the same. Um, it wouldn't mm. have any different meaning. Mm, mm, mm. Well, so a, a lot of the paper deals with sort of moments where there might be a potential for miscommunication. And among other things, you talk about emojis in the context of intellectual property law and how for better or worse, and maybe even almost unintentionally, it seems like intellectual property law, uh, especially patent or sorry, copyright and, and trademark law has the potential to increase the possibility or likelihood of, of miscommunications. I wonder if you could just talk briefly about sort of how emoji do or might fit into the sort of intellectual property framework and why it might be potentially um, the source of some confusion or difficulty going forward. So let's go back to this problem that I uh, mentioned, that uh, the uh, eagle emoji sometimes has wings and sometimes it's just a head profile. Why? Why are those, those differences? Um, how does that help anybody? Um, and so part of my paper and my research uh, behind the paper was to try and answer that question. Why are there these differences that create the possibility of the parties misunderstanding each other? If they are sending these symbols that they don't have the same details, um, and then we could have a situation where uh, the sender and recipient each attach reasonable meanings to the emojis, uh, but they mean different things to the to to them. Why do we have that phenomenon even taking place? Um, and one hypothesis that I offer up and I explain in the paper is that uh, because emojis are eligible for intellectual property protection, the immaterial variation of details is actually a response to the potential that either the emojis will uh, infringe somebody else's intellectual property rights or that the person developing the emoji set wants to create their own intellectual property rights and they have to distinguish it from all the precedents to do so. So the hypothesis is that emojis are protected by intellectual property law, that the that the uh, that protection drives these detailed variations, and then those detailed variations lead to misunderstandings in the field. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really struck me that in a, in a in a way, emojis sit in this kind of liminal space in intellectual property law in the sense that in many respects, they re- they resemble the kinds of things that we would like pictorial works that we would normally think of as protectable by copyright or almost like kind of source indicators that we would expect to be protectable by trademark. But in other ways, they really feel like communicative tools like typefaces that we would expect to, or like letters even, that we would expect to be sort of unprotected by intellectual property law and part of the public domain. I mean, like what box should we be putting them in? How should we be conceptualizing this kind of new communicative tool? That's a great question because it really gets into the the metaphor of emojis as a communication tool. Are they like a hand symbol? Are they like a word? Are they like a two-dimensional art 
Um, and the legal treatment of those might be different. And as a result, uh, how we make the analogy or the metaphor is going to potentially have significant legal consequences. And those significant legal consequences might have significant consequences on how we are able to communicate with each other. So, so this really gets to the heart of the question of how we're going to legally characterize emojis. Um, and there's no doubt that individual emoji symbols are uh, two-dimensional artistic works. Now, sometimes they might be so simple that we're still not going to recognize them as copyrightable artistic works, but there's no question that they are in the same genre as other things that we, we emphatically expect to protect under uh, uh, copyright law as artistic works. Um, and yet at the same time, as you point out, um, there are times at which we literally use emojis as word substitutes. When I write, I heart you, um, I'm not using the heart as a, as a uh, artistic work. I'm using the heart as a word substitute. And when they occupy that role in our communication as a word substitute, we know that intellectual property can't take away my right to write, I heart you. Um, that would be a devastating result on our ability to communicate with each other. Um, so uh, in the paper, I argue for why we should treat uh, emojis as closer to word substitutes as almost a categorical matter because of the benefits we'll get for our ability to communicate with each other. But for the IP uh, hardcore maximalists, um, that's a really tough pill to swallow because it looks a lot, uh, many emojis look exactly like the kind of things that are protected under IP. Mm, 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 mm. Well, Eric said this paper was so much fun to read and I learned a lot and it really got me thinking in a much deeper way about sort of how and why we use emoji. But in closing, I thought maybe we could just really briefly pivot to and get a teaser on your new project that you're working on now in the hopes that when you have a paper uh, draft completed, I can have you back on the show and we can talk about that project as well. That'd be wonderful. Um, let's talk a little bit about content moderation. Uh, this is a, a big issue in our society today. Uh, we have uh, some uh, uh, internet giants with unprecedented scale and reach. Uh, if you think about Facebook having well over 2 billion users all trying to use the same platform, we've never had a medium like that in human history that allowed all those people to talk to each other in the same interface. Um, so we're dealing in some um, precedent ground. And therefore, when a company like Facebook makes a content moderation decision, uh, that has massive implications for our society. They're deciding what content will be published, what content won't be published. Um, and uh, for a long time, uh, how and the internet companies made their content moderation decisions was a black box. We really didn't get any information uh, publicly about those activities. Um, all the people doing the work were under NDAs, and so they couldn't talk. Uh, the companies were uh, treating it as confidential information, so they weren't talking. Um, and so all of the, the these uh, socially significant decisions were being made in a non-transparent way. 
Uh, in February 2018, we held a conference here at Santa Clara University where we got uh, 11 internet companies to talk about what they were doing, quote, under the hood, to actually reveal facts and figures about um, how they were moderating content, uh, uh, who was moderating content, what the standards were, um, and what some of the challenges that they were running into um, in doing all that work. Um, from that conference, we had three follow-on conferences uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., New York City, and in Brussels, where we basically did the same thing. More companies talking about how they did the work that they did and more discussion about the challenges that they were running into. Um, through these series of four conferences that we held, it became clear to me that there was an entire professional community of people working on content moderation that didn't have a good venue for talking to each other. So one of the obvious action items that came from this conference series was trying to find a way to pull that community together so that they could all share tips, share tricks, talk about the common challenges that they're facing, and ideally work out common solutions with each other. So one of my uh, projects I've been working on for the last year and a half has been trying to develop an organization to bring that community together, uh, what I'll call a professional association for content moderation professionals. Um, it's a very powerfully felt need in our community, something that we know we all want, um, and it's just proven to be difficult to get. But I am working uh, furiously on that problem uh, with a team uh, that I'm hoping we're going to have some uh, some specifics to announce in the relatively near future. Wow, that sounds really exciting, and I look forward to hearing more about it. Um, well, Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was really a lot of fun talking to you. Um, the emoji paper was amazing. I, I encourage listeners to check it out as well as your other work on the subject, and I can't wait to hear more about this new initiative. It's so great having a chance to chat with you. I really appreciate the opportunity. to do. He drew a smiley face. He made it yellow too. It was sunny. It was simple. And he said, I'm through. Now, now give a little giggle. Rin a little rin. Do your imitation of the smiley face pin. Open up your heart to let the sun shine in. And share it with your neighbors and your next door kid. Share it with your neighbors and your next door kid. Well, the people got excited when they saw what he had done. So they made up smiley buttons and they handed out a tongue, which went around the world like the world goes round the sun. For a smile begets another, so there's never just one. So give a little giggle, grin a little grin, do your imitation of the smiley face pin. Open up your heart to let the sun shine in, and share it with your neighbors and your next door kin. Your neighbors and your next door kid. Well, that's a little story of how Smiley came to be. 
Back in December of 1963 Call the Guinness Book of Records Tell them quick, come see The happiest face in all of history And give a little giggle Grin a little grin To your invitation of a smiley face pin Open up your heart to let the sun shine in Then share it with your neighbors and your next door kid Share it with your neighbors and your next door kid Moral of the story is to help the world to smile You do an act of kindness, you go the extra mile And what you do comes back to you in just a little while For goodness is contagious and it's never out of style So give a little giggle, grin a little grin Do your invitation of a smiley face pin Open up your heart and let the sun shine in And share it with your neighbors and your next door kid Open up your heart to let the sun shine in.